Africa podcast. Join us as we dissect the continent from the perspective of its best thinkers and doers here on the Change Africa podcast. Our guest today is Elzine Gawasab Mozambi. Elzine has extensive experience in the financial services and oil and gas sectors in the African continent. She brings a professional background in strategy and transformation from her work in Africa and Europe. Most recently, she founded Impact Tank. That's going to be a critical part of our conversation. So she's the founder and CEO of Impact Tank, which is Namibia's first social impact venture builder that is missioned on building commercially viable businesses that solve social issues and host various bus seats in private equity and mining. She is based between Winwalk, Namibia and Zurich, Switzerland. She holds a Bachelor of Commerce degree in Finance, another Bachelor of Commerce degree in Industrial Psychology and a Master of Business in Leadership and a Master of Science. So, we have the wonderful Elzin Gawasab Mozambi with us. And we hope we're going to have an thrilling conversation across venture building, building the continent based on entrepreneurship, um, leadership, and all these critical things that are very crucial to Africa's transformation. Today here with us um, is Elzin Mujambi. So as usual, we will get into the conversation, try and find out a bit more about her background, her motivations, and what is moving her to do the work she does in Africa. So before we start, Elsin, we would like to find out a little bit more about, about you. Um, maybe since I know that you, your major work is in Namibia, and you are based in Switzerland. Maybe you can tell us a little bit where you grew up and how you came to do what you are doing currently. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be chatting to you both this evening. All right. So I'm actually born in Ventuk, Namibia, in the capital city. I'm an 87 to be exact, um, youngest of four kids. And my family immigrated to the UK, you know, in the early 90s. And thereafter, you know, returned to Namibia post-independence, uh, where I attended sort of the end of primary school as well as high school, and then ultimately went to go and study in South Africa. So I first degree, I studied accounting and investment management, and then I just studied a little bit more um, industrial psychology, and then of course a master's in economics, and um, relocated in to Nairobi. So I've been working on the continent for the last about 14 years. And thereafter, so in financial services as well in oil and gas, I moved to Zurich, Switzerland, where I'm currently based. And that's really where Impact Tank was born. Okay, so... You know... Yeah. yeah. Okay, so Impact Tank was born in Zurich, Switzerland. Is that right? That's what you said. 
Yes. So you know me myself, I'm half Swiss, so obviously some interest there in terms of Switzerland, but um, maybe quite unusual to hear that the idea or it started in Switzerland. So how did that work out? Right. So it's definitely, you know, Namibia's first impact venture builder and the story is, is African at heart. But when I was based in Nairobi, I really looked at, um, you know, startups that were doing really well, social impact venture builder models that were very successful. And uh, when I moved to Zurich, I started seeing a different layer of innovation, but then also a sort of rigor and support for venture builders as well as from a technical perspective but also from a funding perspective and so i just couldn't reconcile you know how everything worked in switzerland from a infrastructure access to healthcare access to educational perspective and just the funding available in switzerland to what i was seeing and used to on the continent and that's really how Impact Tank was born and I realized that I needed to bridge this gap between the funding that's sitting in Europe and the impact that is still very much required on the continent and that's really how I started bridging that gap. You know this life of privilege I just could no longer reconcile with what I was living in Zurich every day but what I was very much still seeing the needs of the Namibian people. But more than that, I know that the business model needed to be very sustainable because I always challenge the pure um, donation-based models of NGO so that, you know, when funding sort of ends, uh, the people perish or the project is done. So when I was looking at Impact Tank and how we're going to do things differently, it really had to be a very sustainable model and that's ultimately how the Venture Builder was born. So, so maybe, you know, always born in Africa, it's, it's, it's an African firm, but I was looking at what the technology innovation and, and funding perspectives that exist for venture builders in Zurich and in Switzerland, ultimately. Okay. I think with uh, what you touched upon, especially in terms of the sustainability, I think that's always a key aspect and maybe just to give our listeners a little bit of context because you are saying a social venture builder. So maybe what does that actually mean when you compare maybe to a traditional venture builder and then maybe on the other side, maybe more of the NGOs and other organizations that are very active in Africa? Yeah, absolutely. So Venture Boulder really is an organization that systematically produces new companies and new startups. So that's really what a Venture Boulder is. What a social impact Venture Boulder is, it's when the mandate and sort of the heart of the organization is social impact, sort of what drives the machine. And it's that really that's really the, the difference ultimately. Of course, you do find nonprofit um you know, venture builders, and really the traditional nonprofits, I think what we're very used to are welfare organizations, um, soup kitchens, you know, where you ultimately donate old clothes to. So I think that's very much often still the perception in the market of what a nonprofit is and what a nonprofit does versus what a social impact venture builder does. Builds sustainable new companies that ultimately spin off, they become profitable, and they, um, so the profits thereof or the exit of these organizations can actually feed the operations of the organization. 
Okay. I mean, that's very interesting and it would be, I would like to know more about some of the areas you tackle, but I think before we go there, maybe we first of all go one step back a little bit more to figure out of the, the path and how you saw the, like, of course, you mentioned a little bit between the privileges in Zurich and then what you saw in Namibia, but um, what I would, what, I, what I'm interested in to understand a bit is um, like across the different African countries that you worked in over your uh, career is like what are kind of the problems you saw and is it that when you were working there that you already saw them but it was a little bit difficult to see the how to tackle them and what kind of solution you could do it and that was what opened up later on or how di how did you see challenges and problems on the continent at that stage absolutely that's a loaded question daniel but um you know on the continent there are similarities and the biggest similarities for me was the challenge of access and that was access to you know adequate infrastructure whether that be education, healthcare, financial services. So it really was a, a challenge of access that I was seeing. And of course, you know, people look at the continent as, you know, one country, and it's very, very different, as you're much aware. Sort of East Africa is vastly different to West Africa, Northern Africa, and Southern Africa. But there are similarities, and that really is this, the challenge of access. So while traveling, I was working in financial services as well as oil and gas. So while traveling the continent, um, you know, it, it was ringing true to me that access was a specific challenge. And at the time, I was very much following a corporate trajectory, you know, um, three degrees in, you are looking at sort of the next role title from a, you know, junior analyst, ultimately, to a senior manager, to a senior executive. So you become very fixated, and I was quite stuck in this corporate machine right of what that career trajectory would look like so i wasn't focused on um you know being an entrepreneur or doing my own thing and only in time that sort of kicked in and that developed i think when you have certain layers of you know um stability and you've achieved certain goals i think then you really start resetting ultimately and of course COVID hit right and COVID, I think, was one of the biggest moral resets for, for all of us. And that's really where I started churning, thinking about what the next half of my life looks like. And really, I knew it, was, it had to be in Africa. It had to be in technology, bringing innovation to the, to the continent, but mostly providing access in a sustainable manner to, to the people. Okay. And I mean, you touched up on yeah, the move out of the corporate into the more entrepreneurial space. And um, I don't know, in terms of background, whether you had some, whether you're privy to some entrepreneurial, um, maybe in your family or others, access points to entrepreneurship. And part of the reason why I'm asking is because from what I experienced, for instance, in Ghana when I moved, that is, in general, there is a bit of conservatism in leaving a successful corporate career and taking like a risk or a plunge into something new. So kind of maybe earlier exposures to entrepreneurship. 
Oh, definitely. I come from a family of entrepreneurs as well, you know, so I think it was an easy switch. But everything they tell you about entrepreneurship is true. Um, you know, the late nights trying to get buy-in from the market, you know, your first customer building your first project, it's sleepless nights. And you ultimately end up working harder than you probably did in corporate, right? Because it is your salary at the end of the day. It's the impact that you need to bring. But I was fortunate enough that um, I had a very supportive family. And I think they, they quickly realized that this was the next half of my life. Um, but entrepreneurship really is a beast, right? And I think, you know, in Namibia, the entrepreneurship sort of startup ecosystem is still in its infancy. Right. So there are some headwinds working for you. Right. It's a it's a market that doesn't understand entrepreneurship in its totality. It, every, it is conservative, as you mentioned, you know, and once you leave the, the big boat for the little boat, you actually start feeling the waves ultimately. OK. Yeah. I mean, you, yeah. you mentioned their understanding in entrepreneurship in its totality. Maybe if you can elaborate a bit what is maybe the parts of understanding that uh, that lack or are a bit different in your view this with my family or the um, the, ecosystem, the community at the, large. the community at large sorry yeah the, for the community at large you know it's in its infancy in that um it's very much still in its totality you know meaning that how are you ultimately um providing uh, finances, right? How would you end up paying for bills? And really, when I say in its infancy, it really is a side hustle of note. So people have a what they call a stable job and a stable position. And then sort of after five, they start working on their, their side hustles. And, and with that, you know, you have to ultimately network adequately. You have to be able to balance both sets of lives at, at, to some extent really and those are the kinds of things that you have to look at um, as an entrepreneur in its totality oh okay i understood okay the, the the famous side hustle and it seems i guess i mean when i came to ghana first i mean i grew up in Sicily, but when i came i realized that to an extent almost everyone is an entrepreneur or if you want to look at it from the other way maybe no almost no one is a real entrepreneur in the sense, for instance, I was working in investment banking and we had, like, everyone had a side business or was doing something aside, but nobody was was willing to take the plunge or the risk. And despite having side hustles, looking at um, the connotation of losing money was always something like, uh, in quotes, a stupid risk to take. Which is a funny thing when you take that against being an entrepreneur and, uh, of course, hopefully calculated risk, but taking risks uh, to an extent. Um, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, so I'm. Go ahead. Yeah, no, absolutely, Daniel. Sorry, you know, it really is just a, a question of security at the, this point, right, for us in in Africa. And if you juxtapose it to Europe. I think it's, you know, these ecosystems fly quite quickly and quite easily, ultimately, because I think the social system can catch entrepreneurs, right? Um, you have access to health benefits, unemployment benefits. Um, you know, you have large innovation hubs, co-working spaces that are sometimes free in Europe, whereas we don't have that in this part of our world. So it really is a security factor that you really have to, you know, think twice about. 
And I think those are the, the headwinds that we face within our ecosystem. Yeah, but you now, in your, in, so in your new project in that capacity, you work with entrepreneurs in Namibia and even beyond. So now that you are describing that infancy and it's developing, what is kind of changing in terms of support for entrep entrepreneurs in, uh, in the Namibian startup ecosystem? Right. I think the biggest thing is this change in mindsets, right? The paradigm shift that entrepreneurship full-time can work, but our people always need to see a reference point, right? A reference point of a startup or a venture builder that's raised money, that's been successful, that's been impactful. So I think what's changed is there are now a few reference points of startups that have raised enough money, you know, from locals or internationals or high networks. Then you see this um, wonderful sort of ecosystem enablers that are, you know, bridging the gap, and, you know, through incubator programs, through training, but ultimately through building capacity. And whether that be through assisting with financial modeling skills or pitch training or um, co-working spaces now becoming online or providing this access to a layer of information that usually wasn't available before these ecosystems, you know, came in place. So those are really the changes that we're seeing in the market. And I think that a big, uh, you know, proponent also is private sector is now slowly, I don't think fast enough, but um, they're definitely still pulling their collective shoulder to the wheel and, and getting on board in supporting entrepreneurs, whether that be through CSR initiatives or whether that be through, you know, funding through from a debt financing perspective. But you can see this critical mass of people almost switching on okay. in the Namibian context. In the Namibian context, okay. And when you describe those enablers, investor capacity builders in the system, um, so who are they? Are it organization? Is it wealthy individuals in the system? Or who, who is kind of starting and driving that system and the change? So we are fortunate that we have sort of this, um, you know, startup hub called Startup Namibia. I don't know if the listeners are, you know, familiar with that. And they really are championing, championing this um, roadmap to building the ecosystem. And then, of course, we have specific incubators like um, Dololo and Impact Tank being one of them, of course, um, catering for different branches of, you know, startups, because we have to ultimately catch the entrepreneurs and the startups where they are, right? Because I think th there is this uh, gradient of, you know, low sophistication, low mechanization in low income communities, right? Where you have sort of SMEs that are at that uh, cooker shops, ultimately, you know, the nail bars at the side of the road or the mama on the side of the street selling, um, you know, cakes or sweets. And then you all also get a little bit more sophistication and sexier startups, right? And those startups now have some digital layer or tech enabled product or service. So the ecosystem players are really meeting the market where they currently are and ultimately have to cater for them where they are. So you have the likes of Dololo, um, you have the likes of Launch Namibia, and then of course Startup Namibia, doing what we call the good work that's needed in the market. Okay, the good work that is needed. Um, and then when you look at that good work, I think, um, of course, even with your social impact, you want to reach different democracies and solve problems um, across 
the different like urban areas, rural areas, but also across different classes within society. And you mentioned those one man and one woman shops. So my question to you is kind of how does one kind of reach the bottom of the pyramid and then in terms of solution, but then also in terms of finding entrepreneurs that actually understand that sector or that problem and are therefore able to build kind of inclusive solutions that can reach a bigger market. Yeah, so for us at Impact Tank, it always starts with this layer of research, right? Um, sort of where are the pain points in the market, um, whether this be from a geographic perspective, whether this be from a social economic background, and then of course mapping that and then vetting these entrepreneurs and, and how we go about recruiting them is, you know, identifying a certain set of criteria of and whether that be through an age demographic, whether that be male or female agenda specific, whether that be a specific geographic location. Um, so that's really how we go about identifying it. But one of the things that I think as venture is that we also do is when we look at these solutions, right, we look at what does this informal market look like in the next five to ten years, right? So it's about meeting the entrepreneur where they are. Um, sort of this mama, man or woman selling sweets on the side of the road. What does this job or entrepreneur's life look like five to ten years from now? And how can we equip them with the tools necessary to um, sort of enlarge their reach and enlarge the impact within that specific community? And then, of course, we also do this exercise, I think, a Harvard Business School exercise called distance mapping, where we ultimately map how near or far an opportunity is from reaching its success um, for a specific, um, you know, entrepreneur. Um, I give you the example of in a geographic specific area, if you want to launch an agricultural project, you look at um, sort of soil topography and you see the distance of the possibility of how successful a opportunity is in a specific area. And I think that's really the role of a venture If you want to bring about systemic change, you have to look at what the entrepreneur's solution should look like five to ten years from now and really equip them with tools today to be able to um, refine, enhance, but ultimately enlarge their reach um, for the future. Okay, just for my understanding, when you say like, okay, of course you look into the future, how does this look like five, ten years from now? But the kind of entrepreneurs you work with in terms of, just for clarification, is it like, are you creating, because you mentioned access at the beginning, so is it more of creating access to many smaller entrepreneurs or there is also where you look for that visionary entrepreneur that has the potential with your support maybe to build like a large like a large tech company or is it really more in enabling more of these individuals and creating solutions for them and access to market it's a little bit of both right it's sort of finding this needle in a haystack i'm very convinced that impact tank will find you know the the next unicorn through one of the groups I think you're describing sort of this, um, you know, very simple, basic, uh, one-man show entrepreneur, which we definitely try to equip and support. But then on the other end of, you know, we also do look at um, a little bit more sophisticated or more advanced entrepreneurs on these journeys, but of course within our thematic areas. 
that is aligned to our mandate. So it's a little bit of both, actually. Okay, okay, understood. And like you just mentioned, the thematic areas and your mandate, maybe if you can elaborate on that. Right, absolutely. So, I mean, our goal and our vision is to be the best social impact venture builder in Africa. And we have visions to expand outside of Namibia, you know, possibly starting in Botswana as well as Zimbabwe. And we operate in four thematic areas, and that is human capital. That's all about capacity building, upskilling. And a lot of those projects are centered on sort of digital literacy initiatives or entrepreneurship training specifically. Then we have our food security thematic area, and that's about, you know, feeding the country in order to grow the country. That's about bringing sort of hydroponics, aquaponics to low-income communities, but then again, profitable ventures and building sustainable solutions. Then we have the green economy, and the green economy is all about, you know, energy-related uh, products and services, as well as recycling of waste and then reusing that recycled waste to actually have a sustainable project. But then, of course, our last one that we've just added about last month is financial inclusion. And that really is bringing about sort of financial literacy to the masses, as well as um, funding mechanisms to SMEs, as well as entrepreneurs and those who need it the most. So those are our four thematic areas. Elzin, this is Isaac. Um, I finally found my way through. I would like to know, in your conversation, you just said that you believe Impact Tank has the capacity to find the next unicorn in Namibia. How do you see people who are of the view that typical social enterprise business are not usually scalable and they seem to fall more on the impact side and on the profit side and finding such or institutions or startups that are able to create huge um, revenues, huge um, cash flows that would give them that evaluation of say a billion dollars is a difficult find, especially in Africa. Yeah, I mean, I always tell them to just watch us <laughs> and then ultimately <laughs> see, see what Impact Tank does. But I mean, of course, there are going to be naysayers along the road or along the way. I think it really is about the team. And I always say that the Impact Tank team come from private sector and they come from venture capital and private equity and they come from sort of uh, organizations and, and industries that you understand how to build a, bu a business and how to run a venture. And I think for us, our mandate is impact, but we have to be sustainable as well. And I think really it comes down to the team, right? And how best the team is able to operate and build these ventures. I think, you know, we can all find the problems and we know very well what the problems are and we can ideate uh, policies around them, but it comes to implementation of these solutions, right? Raising the funds for them, scaling these businesses, growing these businesses, and then ultimately exiting them, um, you know, over a long period of time. So I think those are naysayers. I think it can be done and it will be done by Impact Tank. And I just, I feel strongly that it, it boils down to the team and the strength of the solutions that one is able to ideate. So what's the difference? You know, for the average African entrepreneur, um, at least the burgeoning tech entrepreneur, they know of um, 
VCs, you know, of angel investors. The impact building model is different. How does the impact builder come into a company and how do they help them? And, and I mean that how do they differentiate themselves from the active operation of the company and how do they add on to that, um, to, you know, multiply the impact or multiply the opportunity that they have to scale? Yeah. So maybe one step back, Isaac. So impact builders actually ideate those companies, right? So it's not an acquisition. They don't go in and then try to transform the organization. They actually ideate the solution from scratch. And that's, I think, sort of a little bit of the difference there. They actually build the solution from scratch, matching a problem. And then, of course, from a market dem- a demand perspective. So if I get you right, and when these companies are ideated from scratch, are they then given to a founder or some other individual? What is the process of selecting that individual? How is the translation of the vision of the foundational idea translated to that person? And how are they able to continue with it? When does the in- impact um, builder exit the operational elements of the business and then the other founder and his team continue to go with it right so i always look for founders at ideation phase right because i think once you start ideating a solution you already have sort of your exit strategy in mind and your scaling strategy in mind and that's really when you start identifying co-founders whether those are sort of allies in the market like-minded individuals or a specific you know specialization in an industry that you know that this um, project is ultimately going to um, scale in. So for us at Impact Tank, we really have this systemic process of how we build our ventures. And I'll just take you through that quickly. It's a five-step approach of um, ideate, where we have identified uh, problems in specific areas, geographic regions, whether that be sort of unemployment rates, skill levels, um, you know, financial literacy levels, access to food, Um, you know, nutritional levels ultimately. Um, So we ideate solutions around the problems that we've identified. The second phase then is build. And at build, we really start brainstorming, design thinking, the solution, what could scale, what could grow, what would make sense. And then we really start getting a lot of the expert inputs on board. And then, of course, our third phase is launch. And at launch, we then are ready to go to market. This start you're ready to go to market, you're launching the service, you have your first 10, 20, you know, 30 customers. And of course, you're refining and pivoting your business in that launch phase. The fourth phase we've coined is grow. And that really is scaling. And that's now whether that be through cross-border scaling, adding an additional product line or additional product service line. And then our fifth phase is inspiration. And inspiration for us is replication, right? That's a, we've got the ability that the project is running so smooth, we can literally plug and play it in another geographic area or another region. So that's really the process that we use to to spin off and build our ventures. What do you think is the opportunity for venture building to redefine the approach to solving African problems and building African solutions for African problems as against other modules of um, building companies? It's intentionality for me. 
it really is the intention of a builder, um, venture builder as well as you know the rigor and design so i think the potential really is limitless and we should you know capitalize on this modality and this model of building sustainable organizations and businesses because i think what we've seen in the market are a lot of fly by nights right um, whether that be from a quick funding in failed business venture you know a small exit whether that be from it just never took off because we probably didn't do the necessary run in the market or the necessary research we probably didn't go through a testing phase or the market just wasn't ready um, but it really is the potential for venture builders to transform the African landscape, I think, is, is really exponential, right? Because it's this rigorous process through which you try to fail-proof an organization and a startup from um, failing, ultimately. How do you give the project the best success rate, right? And that's really taking it through these five steps and these five steps ultimately you know they've got criteria at each step that it needs to sort of pass and if it doesn't pass to the next phase I mean then we're stopping right and we're not no longer investing a certain amount of money we're not investing a certain number of resources into a specific venture or startup so I really am a, a proponent of venture building in Africa as a modality to explore in all African countries and I think it's time that we really build African brood venture builders right um, we know the problems in Africa so we need to solve the problems and whether we are not at a place where we have the right technology well let's um, accelerate our ability to to learn to get the right tech in but we know African problems and we should be solving African problems and I think venture building is a trusted sort of foolproof way of doing that would you say that incubation yeah would you say that would you say that incubation is a complementary platform for what venture building does from the start or do you have i mean now i'm just having an ideological discussion around what is the best approach into company building, especially for the African context? And so my question again is, would you say that incubation is complementary to the efforts of uh, venture building? Or would you say that as it is done in Africa, it has some downside that makes venture building more appropriate for African status? Obviously, they don't have to be competitive, but what, do you, what, what are your minds, um, mindset and your perspective around that? I think it's definitely complementary, right? Um, but again, when you look at, you know, then you're asking yourself two questions. Are you actually incubating the sort of solution that you're ideating or are you looking externally? Are you looking at incubating a specific entrepreneur? Then that sort of moves away from pure venture building ideology, right? Because it's very internal focus. It's very much starting that business from scratch. Whereas if you're incubating an entrepreneur, then it's not really the... Um, full, you know, core foundational venture building model. But I think it's definitely a complementary process, right? Because I think for Impact Tank, we do have a micro incubator with as a project within our thematic area, um, within our human capital thematic area. And that incubator really is to do, uh, to find pipeline along the way of entrepreneurs that we can support 
going forward and that we can and that and that support looks like you know using our co-working space or whatever we can assist with but it really is i believe a complementary format for the african market i don't think it's an either or um i think it's an and and both at this point yeah elsie so um i'm taking you one step back to something you mentioned before in terms of the it being intentional. So I was wondering in that first step of ideate, the selection of the founders. So, I mean, I know they are involved, but in terms of the intentionality of founder selection, what are your, how does that work? What are your thoughts on that? We're looking for the people with the same vibe, right? <laughs> no, that, that is sort of the, the blanket answer. But, um, you know, set criteria, you're looking at, um, depending on the solution that you're ideating, you're looking at what that founder can ultimately bring to assist in the scaling and growth of the venture. And that scaling and growth could look like money, sort of funding, that could look like network. You know, they're able to unblock certain avenues that need to be, you know, obstacles that need to be removed, or that is looking at a specific technology base that they have, or they are possibly not in the current state of the venture, but where we envision the venture, sort of if we are to vertically integrate, and we can then identify a founder that could scale the business three to five years from now. So those are really the criteria that I'm looking at. But as a team, you know, we like to tell each other they have to have the same vibe as us. Okay. I mean, I get the, the vibe part, but that, the, your answer kind of addresses the who, but what I'm also looking at is like where and how do you find them? Is it like, I don't know, do you get closer to universities? Is it events? Is it just, I mean, a kind of online search or how do you find it? Because when you usually talk with a lot of, I mean, not necessarily venture builders, but even founders, first of all, for maybe early stage hires, people are struggling in the market. And I mean, team is critical, as you mentioned. So how do you go about that, especially for somebody who is building across different thematics, which means kind of as a venture builder, as you kind of have a framework as well of how you go about that. Yeah. It's definitely tapping into the network, right? And that network is coming from um, business schools uh, that, you know, I've attended or people in my team have attended that is looking at sort of webinars that we're giving speeches at, who else is sitting on the panel um, that's looking at a friend of a friend, ultimately, or coming from a news article that we've seen or a LinkedIn post. So there isn't a, you know, tap a real foolproof strategy in that, but it really is, I think, tapping into um, the network to identify the where are we getting them from, and and that's really the answer. You know, it, it, it's tapping into the network and, and doing sort of this um, landscape survey of where we could get these people. So that's ex-business school, family friends, um, webinars, LinkedIn posts. And, and that's really where we're, we're looking for our co-founders.
I want to focus on some of the portfolio startups that you have. Um, let's talk about unearthed artists. Because that is kind of a space that for a long time in different African countries, people have been trying to build in, but have not been able to have a global scale. But you can talk about all the brilliant artistry that we have on the African continent. And I, I don't know how Namibian culture is, but there is usually facets of culture that is superimposing to the creating of very nice artifacts. And so I would think that it's no different. But what are you doing differently to make sure that you're building like a, um, an African marketplace that artisans can finally be able to have their goods on and have that global reach like, um, Etsy, um, sites like Etsy have? Absolutely. I think I'm going to just take you one step back to, to really speak about why Unearthed Artisans started. So when COVID hit in Namibia, we saw an, a decrease of about 81% in international tourists. And we realized there are about three to 4,000 craftsmen and artisans in the country that were reliant on tourists physically entering the country in order to buy their goods. And I think, you know, what COVID's done when people just weren't visiting the country, we at Impact Tank quickly realized that this is, um, you know, a problem and we ultimately have to, to solve that. And that's really how Unearthed Artisans was born, to provide the Dach region specifically with a high quality Namibian goods. And really we, um, you know, source our artisans, you know, through this vetting process and again to, to ultimately ensure that we are able to provide the market with high quality goods. So that's sort of the background of Unearthed Artisans. But what we do differently is we understand the Dach region and we understand the trends and the sort of demand side from the Dach region, what customers like and what they want to see. And then we are able to ensure that our craftsmen and unearthed artisans are sort of making uh, goods aligned to what the market wants. So I think that's really what's setting us apart from, you know, a, a normal marketplace. And of course, the um, it's a social impact venture builder. So you, you catch a, a, a group of conscious consumers in the dark region. So that's how we also die, um, differentiate ourselves from competition. But of course, it's then, you know, from a logistical perspective, it's also ensuring, you know, deliveries are on time and um, reverse logistics work properly. So that's really how we differentiate in the market and I think how we are successful. And how is that model going so far? That's going well. We slowed that model down during the, the peak of lockdown when um, all borders closed and every country, but we've slowly picked that up again. So as, as the world is um, opening back up, you know, we're, we're, the trends are looking upwards. Okay. So another thing I want to talk about is food security is huge, a huge problem. Um, a lot of difficulty and especially from where we are in Ghana, um, in the West African region, there is a difficulty in growing some crops locally. And I think that solutions like, um, aquaponics able to, you know, bridge the guy, the gaps in weather and nutritional, soil nutrition, et cetera, et cetera. All of those problems that exist. But again, is the issue of scalability. Is the impact, um, 
venture builder model here to build like small pockets of such, um, say, green hubs. Um, the word exactly I'm looking for is uh, are there are components like such, I don't know, tunnels. I don't know the, how that model works. So I like to, you to go into, but how does that look like at scale? And how the, is that able to actually, you know, impact a lot of people? Because when it comes to food security, it's eventually about how that food is able to reach people and mass, how it's able to actually solve the problem of getting um, consistency in food supply, reduction in, in food. Like right now, price hikes are ridiculous around the world. So how does that model look like a skill where it's been able to reach a lot of people and it can have that um, impact that, it's supposed to. Yeah. So really, if you look at it in its totality, right, it is a, as you're saying, a hub, a network of aquaponic farms around the country catering to a group of people based on their demand requirements and then, of course, sort of what the aquaponic system can build. So typically with aquaponics, you cannot, you know, grow soil vegetables like um, potatoes, for example, it's very much a leafy greens, some berries, maybe marrows, and I've seen butternut grow quite well as well in that market. So at scale, it's a network of aquaponic demonstration farms around the country. So, and I think that's quite large, right? So from a scaling perspective, you are then able to ultimately feed um, every community possible, but then you're also able to equip um, the people within that specific community. So it's not just for Impact Tank to run this network, right, or have to own these hubs, but to also transfer that layer of skill to um, specific community members. You know, so with our demonstration farm, we have this training program attached to it. And that training program, you know, at graduation provides this farm in a box to a individual that then ultimately can become a smallholder farmer and you can become then the market or the aggregator for a community from a scaling perspective. But, you know, let me just put this into perspective for you. Namibia imports 80% of fresh fruit and vegetables from South Africa. 80%. Right, so just from a food security perspective, that's a challenge. So if you have a network of, you know, aquaponic demonstration farms around the country where you are able to feed the economy in order to grow the economy, you've ultimately reached scale, right? Um, so a lot of the challenges in the country specifically are large distances between towns, lack of cold, yeah, large um, lack of cold storage facilities, um, but then also there isn't an affinity for climate smart agriculture as yet. And that's really a you know perception that Impact Tank is ultimately trying to um, negate in, in the community. You know, there's nothing wrong with aquaponics, but it's just um, sort of changing the mindset of specific community members that climate smart agriculture ultimately is probably the way to go, right? Because you can control the climate. Um, you know, in a in a sort of closed ecosystem, whereas you're not dependent on rain specifically. So then drought and rainfall, you almost sort of buffered yourself from. But that really is sort of how you, you reach scale. And the low, the smallholder farmers currently, you know, low yields, low mechanization, 
And that's really the challenges that they are experiencing that we'd like to assist with our specific project called Aquanam. So I guess then you're going to be integrating small water fathers into Aquanam because, I mean, there is you for other people. The issue that could exist is that while there is an opportunity of uh, more mechanized, more technological farming, um, people that have a livelihood in their very small farms are not able to um, benefit from the growing economy because the more mechanical, technological farms are eating into the available uh, market that exists, or that's not the case? Um, you know, that's sort of a um, complex question, right, that, that requires, I think if the economy is importing 80% of fruit and vegetables, the whatever, even if there are sort of large commercial farms, they're still not catering to the people, right? So that still leaves a, a gap in the market for um, whether it be smallholder farmers or whether that be through, you know, aquaponic demonstration farms, but there still seems to be a very large gap um, from a food security perspective for the economy. Let me just take the conversation to a different path. Um, you have amassed all these experience and skills. What inspired you to, to, to come back to do impact building? That's the first question. But the second also is, at what point did you think or believe or did you make the shift that building companies is a way to build Namibia? Yeah. So what really inspires me is um, a bunch of people, right? So I'll start there, really. Um, and that really is sort of some of the late great, you know, African presidents that were quite militant and quite aggressive in, um, you know, doing what they needed to do in order to, to turn and bring independence to these countries. And then there's also obviously this wave of African professionals that have just sort of surpassed Africa and they're heading up large banks and sort of European corporations, you know, like Tiam Zajane specifically, that comes to mind quite quickly. So I'm really inspired by sort of a, a bunch of a bunch of people. But um, when I switched and I was telling Daniel, you know, a little bit earlier, that I realized that we needed to change the sort of mindset of what venture building looks like and what um, social impact looks like in the country. And that's really why Impact Tank exists. And I believe that the easiest way to do that is through ownership of these ventures and controlling that value chain and controlling that ability to scale it and of course providing access to the Namibian people for uh, products and services that I believe should be theirs and what they ultimately need. What is your perspective of the controlling of the ventures against the idea of shared wealth, because if input, uh, the idea of shared, yeah, so I, my question is, what is your view on controlling of the ventures, just making sure that they become successful against the idea of shared wealth? Because the idea of shared wealth, by the idea of shared wealth, I mean that the average startup is going to have a couple of people that are building it and all of that, they're going to have equity, 
does the impact model reduce or accelerate how much people are going to benefit from the creation of these businesses? Does it expand the, what I say, the value chain of wealth creation? I believe it does, right? So I think it accelerates um, the impact because of the sort of beneficiaries that are attached to it. So that that's really where that enlargement comes in because, I mean, you can have the, the impact or rather the beneficiaries um, of the project, the products and services really then becomes almost this multiplier effect, right? So I, I take you back to aquaponics, for example. So in small towns, uh, secondary tier towns in Namibia, they often pay about 120, 140% more for, for goods compared to sort of larger cities and larger towns. So if you are able to provide fruits and vegetables at a sort of more affordable price, then you've ultimately allowed tens of thousands of people to engage in a market that they probably wouldn't have been able to. From a two perspectives, right? One, the more affordable fruits and vegetables, but also two, uh, access to a different variety of fruits and vegetables. So now you're also able to introduce sort of herbs, leafy greens to communities that ultimately didn't have that. You know, so so that's really how the model, I think, accelerates and has this multiplier effect because the beneficiaries of these products and services um, are ultimately uh, multiplied. One, through this training component, you know, depending on how you ideate and design the solution, because now, you know, I've already explained that ultimately these graduates receive this form in a box. So now you've upskilled this layer of the community, right? But then on the other part is now you provided access to a specific good for a community that ultimately wouldn't have had that before at an affordable price. And um, so that's really why I think that the venture building and social impact venture building model ultimately accelerates um, impact specifically because at design, you know, some of the criteria are already must impact five to 10,000 people at scale or within one to two years of the model. And what that impact looks like um, is different from project to project and ultimately um, ideated. So I would like to know that how many ventures, right, is a venture builder able to build at a time and manage? (laughs) Uh, Isaac, how long is a piece of string? Uh, you know, I think it's really just dependent on, you know, size of the team and, of course, complexity of the venture. Can I give you a number of four or five at a time? Um, I can't because every venture is at a different stage of development and sophistication. So you might have sort of 10 projects, for example, in ideation phase, only four in that move on to build phase. Maybe that drops down to They've fallen out at bold stage. You probably have three moving on to launch and then at growth phase, probably two and then at inspiration one. So you almost have this, you don't have 10 at every stage. You sort of have this funnel ultimately of the ventures that um, make it all the way through. And I think you ideate multiple solutions, right? But once you get into that bold phase, you start realizing the complexity of policies, the amount of money that you need, the impact isn't going to be large enough. And you sort of have these criteria for 
moving each venture on to the next phase. But I think, you know, the number that you can manage, I think, is dependent on how much money you raise and the size of the team. Yeah. I, I was asking that question because I want to understand that, say, best case scenario in the next 10 years, are you looking at, for example, because the inspiration phase is uh, a tier, there are five of these companies that are like in the best case scenario, we have three or four um, staff that are scaling because you already have these thematics that have been drawn. So I would imagine that there is a an aspiration of how in a couple of years when this has become the model that you anticipate that it's going to be, it has these businesses affecting these number of people, perhaps even beyond Namibia. Yeah. Absolutely. So from a number perspective, you know, in the next five years, we want to have 20 ventures at inspiration phase. And we would like to operate in five African countries within the next five years. And I think later this year, we should launch in Botswana as well as Zimbabwe. And so I believe that number would be reached, you know, quite quickly. Wow. That's, that's, the, that's what I was trying to get to. That's like a very huge, a very huge ambition. Because, yeah, that's a huge ambition. I mean, because the reason I want to understand is that I, I don't think I understand venture building as much. So I am learning through this process and this conversation how that model is able to do that. But I see how a scale, this can really change a lot of um, what I guess is a shoplifting approach at problems and solving them, I guess, that you see in the market. People just see, okay, maybe this is the more interesting thing. This is what investors are for. And then they just go after that problem. They may not be particularly aligned with the problem or have a experience that backs them or have networks that unlocks doors for them, as you have said. But that is what I was trying to understand. And I think that everyone listening to me would um, agree that if this works, then it has opportunity to, you know, really create specific value chains and solutions for some of the mostly difficult to solve problems. Because again, it seems like you are going after the hard problems. Hard in the sense that these are things that are not necessarily problems that are new in the market, have already existed, but people have not found ways to unlock it. Absolutely. You know, and I think that those are sort of systemic, deep trenched issues, right? that you're trying to uncover and ideate solutions for. And I think quite quickly you could ask probably, you know, many members of the populace, you know, or on the continent, what are the current problems? And they'll probably name them for you, right? It's it's access to this, it's non-funding for, you know, small businesses. Um, we can name our problems quite quickly, but I think it's the intentionality in how we solve them and how we scale those problems and how we manage the um sort of growth and sustainability of those solutions. You know, so it's not a, a fly-by-night organization, you know, identify a problem, bake a solution, raise money for it for a three-month project, and then sort of put your hands up and say, okay, guys, we tried, it's been great, thank you. It's sort of this long journey that you take with community members in different parts of the country to bring about systemic, sustainable change. And, and I think that's really the core of what we do at Impact Tank. You know, it must be sustainable and it must be, you know, the systemic change. 
Yeah, I was wondering, like that kind of systemic change. So in the way you are changing and sh trying to shape the future, and also before you mentioned looking five, ten years, like on individual, like how markets will look like. So my question is, with what you envision, um, how different will these kind of economies be, maybe compared to more traditional, let's say maybe Western economies, how they developed? And the reason why I'm asking is because I'm looking at some of the problems and it almost seems that some of them you are almost having kind of a sharing economy where you are creating the access, be it even the farm in the box and then having a lot of people. And uh, I think funny enough, when you look globally, like the kind of sharing economy has become a trend. And um, do, so my question is, how do these economies develop? That's the first question. And the second question, do you think that maybe some African settings lend each its, itself maybe even more to sharing economy type of business models? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, the first part of that is I think digital technologies are going to allow us to leapfrog and perhaps accelerate, um, you know, growth and the systemic change. And I think what digital tools allow us to do is, so in African countries, we know there is sort of an infrastructure gap, whether that comes from our roads specifically, right? Um, but then we're able to overlay this digital infrastructure to almost close the gaps of physical infrastructure. So I think that's going to um, play quite a big role in the, in the growth and trajectory going forward. Sorry, Daniel, what was the second half of your question? The second half was about uh, the sharing economy, whether... Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, for us, Ubuntu really is, it's real in Africa. And I think it comes natural for us to, to share, right? It, it comes natural for us to take care. We are our brother's keeper to take care of our neighbors, take care of um, what we need to. Black tax is still very much real. So I think that, you know, the Western economies, their sharing economies are coming from platform-based businesses, whether that be through Airbnb or, um, you know, Uber or, um, you know, their sharing economies are digitally enabled, whereas our sharing economies were very much still sort of taking care of the neighbor's farm or assisting watching the house for your neighbor or taking care of your neighbor's kids. But that is slowly transforming into what probably the Western world would call sophistication, which I don't think so. I mean, it's already sophisticated in its ecosystem, what it currently is. But I think we are going to slowly start overlaying this um, sharing economy and with digital tools in the African context. And I think that's really what's going to allow us to um, leapfrog over the next couple of years. I like the idea of the sharing economy. Uh, I have been fascinated in Africa's history of sharing economy for a very long time. And it seems like maybe you can trace the roots of what has become now platform-based um, sharing economies of the West to Africa because those are inherent systems because of our ways of cohesive living and, you know, shared living spaces and compounds and all of that. But I mean, I see that you're trying to differentiate that model from the Western model. But is it that we need to graduate from those communal um, ideologies that basically form the, the foundation of those shared um, shared economies, at least in the African sense? Do we need to graduate into 
more platform-based economies to monetize them or there is a different framework there's a different way of thinking around those for african uh, in african settings i don't think it's a, a form of you know graduation because that means that we need to go from a worse off state to a better off state right i think it's it's perfect in its its state and i absolutely believe that perhaps we can attribute you know western platform economies to african sharing economies i think what we need to do is um, not graduate but what tools could we enhance or add um, to the um, to the to the sharing mechanisms that we currently have in Africa. So I, I don't think it's you know wrong what we currently have and we need to make it right. It's probably just looking at um, how, do we, do we need to make it different? And if the answer is yes, then how do we do that? If we don't need to make it different, then we don't need to make it different. Um, but it, it's definitely not um, we're wrong and that needs to change. Um, but now we are aware of you know certain tools um, in the market that perhaps could assist but I don't believe it's um, uh, worse off to, to make it better should that not be necessary I mean personally I sometimes feel that uh, some of the problems we face sometimes is like kind of a collective society that was taking up and copying parts of a more individualistic society and it's kind of once you have that misalignment it leads to results that kind of the value chain doesn't work any longer it's like either you have the more individualistic route where yeah there is kind of a very capitalistic system that provides the incentives to make that work or alternatively you have more of a collective system which i feel when i look around we have in a lot of um, in a lot of spaces and in a lot of informal sectors. Um, so I mean that's just an observation. But maybe now that I spoke, I ha have a question coming out of that in terms of that informal sector grad changing, not graduating, changing into um, is it like how does it change into a formal sector? And then maybe from a government perspective as well. That's maybe a little bit outside of the questions we have been asking you, but in terms of revenue collection and contribution maybe towards government income, because I guess there is also certain problems maybe that even, of course, for-profit models, but maybe even social impact venture builder can could not address. So what do you think about that? You know, again, these problems are complex, right? And, and for that, they need complex um, solutions. And it's not sort of a one-size-fits-all approach. Um, but it really is what we would call, you know, banking the unbanked in th these economies. But I think it's also in terms of reaching, uh, you know, all parts of the population. You know, do you have a concentration challenge, you know, in urban areas versus rural areas? Does every single person have access to the same sort of governmental services or products? And I think that really should be what the goal is, right? That every person has access to the same thing, regardless of gender, regardless of race, regardless of age. Um, but then I think, again, it is um, the complexity comes in customizing sort of an element like revenue collection. Um, but that sort of is founded and underpinned by 
an organization, whether that be a venture builder or whether that be the government's ability to reach a specific populace. So does, does, I, that, does that clear it up for you, Daniel? I, I'd like to go back on something that you said. When we were talking about your inspiration for Africa, you said that um, some of your favorite Africans have been leaders who did what they had to do, to perhaps do a military. Can you talk about some of those leadership inspirations and your view on leadership in Africa in general? Yeah. You know, I, I look at, um, you know, some of the late grades, and there was almost this militancy, right, in um, getting the people on board to buy into the vision of liberating us. And almost, you know, this aggression in getting their point across. But then, of course, um, suffering, you know, huge perils in trying to get that vision across. So those are some of the leadership traits that I really look at in these African presidents. It's this militancy, it's this aggression, and this very much, you know, one focus, we are going to get through this no matter what. And those are really the principles I'd like to employ. Like um, who? Would, with, like who, which people exactly? Oh, yeah, I think, you know, you'd like um, Nelson Mandela, the founding father of Namibia, Dr. Sam Nyoma, I think we have Kwame Nkrumah as well. Um, so it, it really is this militancy and this aggression. And I always ask myself, you know, if I was really, you know, living in the 60s and the 70s, how militant would I be? How militant would you have been, Isaac? Um, you know, to really free and liberate your people. What is the translation of those militancy into our times? Do you think that those more um, strong world personalities for those times were supposed to be an adaptation of what the times required and now the kind of leadership style that is needed is different or do you think that we still need a semblance of such leadership traits? because one could say that akin to such strong world fire-hearted we need to get this done leadership is what is happening in rwanda and it might have its criticisms but at large it does have a certain good idea of it does get some good press right around the the the, the new um, Africa and what the potential of Africa has to be. So, like, what do you think about uh, counterbalancing those different types? I think it's very much you know what the so so those you know late grades I that militancy. If I just take you back, I, I describe really it's resilience, right? It's ultimately resilience and the ability to withstand what you need to withstand. Um, but I think that you have to look at a country based on and adjust your leadership according to where the country is currently, right? And pre-independence, I know we required um, militancy and aggression, right? That's what was needed. Um, what we need right now is economic growth, Um and what are the traits that we need for economic growth at this point, right? I think it's an understanding of you know, the times and the economics and the, the balance. So for me, it's very much of flexibility within leadership in the African uh, context of where the country currently is in development. And as you mentioned, you know, Rwanda, things work, 
um, you know, the economy is growing. They, as you're saying, they're having good press at the moment. Um, but then, of course, there are sort of criticisms to that um, state as well, as they are with any African country. Um, but it really is about what does the economy of a country need. And I think that's really um, what the foundation should be for a leader. I mean, I mean, I think in any business, right, you wouldn't employ um, aggression in a sort of tree-hugging moment. Like, you wouldn't go in doing that, right? I think you adjust your leadership style as you adjust um, what you need to achieve and what the goals ultimately are. If you're starting a new business, you're probably going to need a little bit more teeth more hair on your teeth, right? So you're going to be a little bit more aggressive because you're trying to hard sell, you're trying to get buy-in um, from your customers and from your team. And when you're sort of stabilizing and growing, you're now looking at uh, more nurturing the business, retaining your talent. So if you're adjusting yourself and your leadership style based on where your organization ultimately is, you know, you would do that, I believe, as a leader in the African context long way to tell you that you know you require some flexibility i think for where the country currently is yeah i mean i mean i think that was a good analogy with the company but to stay on that analogy when you look at of course you need to transition maybe from the beginning where you are more aggressive towards a more managerial and then eventually more inclusive style but what i always ask myself in the political context is um is the question of transition because sometimes i mean you might to stay with the startup you if you run the startup and you have an aggressive leadership style and push it forward the question is how do you pass on the company to me and it being um it's still being sustainable so i understand the point you're making with the economy but i'm asking myself sometimes yes how what happened what happens 20 years later with certain styles does it it might generate certain benefits short term but like just that question of transition and does the next leader be able to pick it up because that flexibility and transition is not within one person i don't know if you get the kind of thought i have it's not yeah yeah no no absolutely and i think you know i think to answer your question the biggest difference between country and organization is just magnitude and scale right so the ship takes longer to move and longer to change so and, and the good thing about it is countries really normally have sort of a 20 30 year vision for themselves and namibia the, ourselves have got a 20 30 vision that was you know started about 20 years ago and so any incumbent leader is working towards that specific vision and aligning their leadership style based on um, where they are in reaching the objectives for that vision and um, what the challenges are during that specific term and that specific tenure. So I think the difference is the, the vision for a country is, is always long term. And I think that is not really a function of, um, you know, or, or flexed or changed or pivoted based on leadership style, or rather it shouldn't be. But you really are always looking at a country from a 20 to 30 year uh, perspective. And chances are the policies and legislative sort of barriers um, or inhibitors or policies in place are probably in place for 30, 40 years at a time. So I think that's probably, you know, the biggest difference I see between uh, organization and um, economy. And that's how you manage the transition. But I, I believe that incumbents have the same vision 
possibly just different leadership styles. But I don't think those different leadership styles are at the peril of a country's vision. And we haven't experienced that in Namibia. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think the, the analogy was brilliant. And I admire your confidence in incumbent governments. I don't think I, do, I, I have the same confidence, but I admire yours. <laughs> um, <laughs> for, for my last question will be that, what is your vision for Namibia across business and politics? You know, Namibia is only a, we're a young democracy, you know, received independence in 1990. We have 2.5 million people, which I know you can laugh, it's tiny. Um, <laughs> we are not laughing, we are not laughing. <laughs> you know, it's, it's 2.5 million people. So my vision really is to ensure that every Namibian has access to basic needs, right? And again, that is healthcare, education, um, infrastructure, and um, it really is for me every Namibia to have access to um, everything, regardless of race, gender, geographic area, and that really is for me. You know what I'm working towards at at Impact Tank is to ensure that we have we're equal. We really are. Yeah, I would, I guess I said last question, but I am very passionate about leadership, about equality. So let me ask one question. How do we ensure equality in the world where there are no equal stats? Because I find it problematic and I find it more idealistic than realistic that there is a, there's a rallying towards equality, but there are, biological individual differences that fight against that very idea i don't think all people necessarily want to be equal with others i don't think all people are equally motivated i think that situational economic backgrounds um foundational legacies that people have 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 become their privileged um advantages that allow them to grow and it goes across generations um i i think that there are gender balances and differences etc etc so how does that move from an ideal of equality to a realism of equality in the lives of people barring all these multiple um, variables that in my point of view, are just almost impossible to control. Yeah. So, you know, I definitely sort of agree with you, but I think what we have to do first is enlarge the base, right? And I think how we shift from, um, you know, the ideology to the real, you know, the circumstance, ultimately, I think we just have to start at... Um, enlarging the base. And I think the discrepancies that we describe are just so vastly different right now. Um, so I think that the base for me always becomes access to a specific resource and service. What an individual then decides to do with that access, I believe is the individual's prerogative. But I believe that the system should at least allow for equal access at the very basic. 
and at the very base. Um, and I think over time, my gut tells me that people would then be taking these opportunities and I think running a little bit faster. Because I think at, you're right, Lisa, we're starting off with, you know, five steps in front and three steps behind. Um, just the biological differences between us or, you know, where we've been brought up, those are real things. But at the same time, um, it's still very real that certain parts of the country don't have access to water or um, toilets or um, electricity should they should they be requiring it. So for me, it's very much um, it's ac providing access to a specific resource and then what that individual decides to do with that, um, that becomes their right. But then well, how do you ultimately... Go ahead. What's one access if, I mean, you had the magic wand to swing, what one access to opportunity would you grant? Oh, this is hard. This is hard. Um, only one. I would say education. Yeah, I mean, I mean, education. You know, Horace Mann, <laughs> eighteen, whatever. Education, greatest equalizer. We've been drumming it. What is really? I mean, I'm sorry. I, I, at this point, I'm like trying to get into this, but what is really that education that? equalizes right because i think the one people say that education equalizes and i've said that before right i think what they mean is that it has the opportunity to enlarge the base i guess right ideologically but that it equalizes needs to take multi-generational effects before there is any actual real equalization but maybe it can cause an increase in social mobility, right? But even then, what is that type of education? The reason I'm asking this is that there are people who, at least from where we are in West Africa, um, Nigeria brought up almost, I think, 5,000 PhDs, and over women, 90% or so are unemployed. They have education. It doesn't seem that it has moved the level for them. At what point does that education start to reap benefits for them? And what type of education does that movement across um, different classes and different stages of economic parity in society? Yeah. So I think that's when um, a number of variables work together, right? So I don't believe, as you're saying, and I think if I'm following your thoughts, it's alignment with education on one side, but then things also need to work on the other side, right? Because otherwise you, you're sitting with like millions of educated people who you're rightfully saying are unemployed and probably don't have the, you know, the structures to become self-employed or, you know, from an entrepreneurship perspective. So I, I believe that answer lies in things having to work concurrently with this layer of education. But also one of the things that, you know, we experience in Namibia just from an educational perspective, and this is sort of a Southern African aspect, is um, very much this negative perception of vocational education, vocational training. Um, you know, it's sort of a looked down on if you're not um, in finishing high school and going to a specific university and studying hard sciences or becoming an engineer or a doctor. Um, but really, but that's really a side note. But I think things have to work concurrently with um, access to education. Um, it needs to be different types of education based on the different types of people there are, whether that be you know 
vocational training, whether that be sort of specialization in different areas a little bit sooner, um, or, you know, the, the economy must be growing. You need some sort of capital flowing in the market to allow for, for growth, ultimately. Um, but things have to work together, ultimately. Yeah, I mean, just to come in, I mean, I was very interested when Isaac brought up that topic. I mean, now we are going a bit over time. But, <laughs> um, I mean, what I think is, is like, if you broaden education at the end of the day, real education and not PhD is like, real education is about being able to create solutions. And I think once you broaden that access to education along the whole value chain everywhere from the top to down to vocational to PhDs, you at least get problem solvers and people that can seek opportunities, which automatically broadens your economy and so on and so on. Because, I mean, I think that's the problem. I mean, I don't know how that is in Namibia, but me and Isaac had a lot of discussion. I think the problem when we say education, we mean papers often. And that kind of mindset is first and foremost very dangerous. And the second thing is if only five or 10% of people have, let's say, access to a good education, inherent, like they have to end up in leadership positions. Whilst that, those five to 10% might not necessarily be people that were carved out like temperamentally to be in those kinds of positions. But once it's only five or 10% going to a proper education, they would all want to go to university. They would all want to pursue certain opportunities because there is no, now I'm talking now, because I can't see, there is kind of a lack of middle class without the back, without that broad education. And once middle class lasts, you go either top or down. And I think automatically, you naturally it kind of engraves that you wouldn't want to do, let's say, vocational training, wouldn't want to have certain jobs because it's like you are choosing whether you belong to the closer to the elite or upper, upper middle class or otherwise all the other, the vast majority is not included. So I think, I mean, I'm kind of making, I think, Elsin's point to a, to, to, to an extent. Um, and I think really that equality, I think we can all agree that it is ideological in terms of the outcome, but not in terms of, I think really you, what you are talking to is equality of access. And of course, I mean, even that access, of course, somebody will always have more, but at least you get the base. You are, you are not hungry. You get clean water. You can go to a toilet. You can go to get a good education. And of course, thereafter, good base education. And thereafter, I mean, it's, each and everyone, what the person does with um, with that access. And I think me personally, like coming to Ghana, one of the things that has inspired me to, to want to be in Ghana and remain in Ghana and do things is because I quickly realized that majority of the people have no chance. Like beat economic mobility is like from the beginning, it's like it's just a different playing field. And I think... I don't know if it's the same kind of sentiment that you are having, but uh, yeah, it's just an interesting topic and I'm passionate about it, as you can see <laughs> or hear. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely, you've hit the nail. I mean, absolutely. If you just look at a population of 2.5 million people, if we just, for example, have, you know, 100% of graduates being medical doctors, or you have 2.5 million medical doctors. I mean, who's going to take care of who? We still need all the other types of, you know, educational streams. 
And um, it's definitely, as you're saying, the, the base, absolutely the access to the base. Thank you very much, Elzine. Um, this has been a very great conversation. Um, thank you very much for coming. Uh, I've never been to Namibia before. I have been to South Africa, but it's a, it's a beautiful um, country from the pictures and from the from the things we see on the internet. Hopefully, one day we can get there, and then you would give us a very um, good um, Namibian welcome. We hope. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Isaac and Daniel. So the invitation is open. Please visit um, Namibia. And, you know, everybody that always, you know, when I tell them firsthand I'm from Namibia, they say, oh, I've been to South Africa. Exactly what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> we are sorry. We are sorry. No, that's, uh, we're used to it now. We're used to it. We're sort of the little, the little brother, right? The little cousin. But thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to tell you a little bit about myself, Namibia, and of course, Impact Tank, Namibia's first social impact venture builder and how we plan to scale and change Africa. Okay, Thanks thank so you much. very much,